reaching from way down here. Yeah. Yeah. From way down here. Welcome to Thread, a podcast designed to explore God's story and lead you into a full life in Christ. Thank you for joining us in this conversation, co-hosted by myself, Hannah D'Souza, and Dr. David Pochter. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Thread. Hello, Dave. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Good to see you. You're in a new place. You're in a different location <laughs> than other. Am. I'm back in Boston. I've moved into my dorm, so I'm going to be an RA this semester. Actually, it was just before this putting up door signs for my students, and I've gone with, if you guys have a video, you can see I've got these two. Do you know what this symbol is? Wow. Dave? No, I don't. What? Oh, no. I don't I, know. They know. It's the, Lon- it's the London Underground sign. So well, how would they names. know that unless they've been to London and... Well, I thought it was a very classic image. I hope I hope it makes oh. sense. But anyway, they're all on their doors to welcome them. So hopefully I won't get any interruptions today. But yes, I am back. It's good to be, good to be back. Fantastic. Yeah, school year's starting back up. So here we go. Yeah, all right. Well, today is going to be a fascinating day, Hannah. It what are we is. doing today? So today is our fifth episode in our series of seven on God's world created. Um, Last week, we discussed Genesis 1 and 2, and the theme was becoming fully human. So today's episode, we are calling human limitations as we kind of jump into Genesis 3 and 5. Yeah, this, honestly, these are really important, but very tricky episodes. I think I would say I've spent more time reading and researching these next few episodes by far than anything we've done uh, up until now, because the way we read these stories really determines how we view our creator and ourselves. And when we misread or misunderstand, there's serious consequences and complications. So. I think even in our current day, the way that we read these passages is often framed a lot on theology, on what other people have said before us, and sometimes it can really limit us. It's it's been a fascinating journey here, right? (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Dave is not wrong when he said he spent a lot of time on these episodes. When he was walking me through kind of the framework, he I don't know if you guys have seen there's a meme of like a crazy scientist with a chalkboard behind him and all these equations <laughs> like gesticulating. And that's how it felt watching Dave talk oh, through these Oh, thank episodes. you. Thank you for so that. So you're in for a treat. A, a mad but scientist. I know, <laughs> yeah. I know for me, kind of this whole story raises a lot of questions, as I'm sure it does for many people, whether, first of all, Adam and Eve even existed, whether they're allegories or symbolic of something questions of even gender, like at, why does God give the instructions to Adam and not Eve? And or why does Satan attempt Eve and not Adam? And yeah, so there's lots of places I think we can go with this kind of foundational story in Christianity. Why, I know you mentioned a bit about not wanting theology to be a focus here, but why do you think these questions are perhaps not the right ones to ask or 
why are we not making that the focus of this episode today? Yeah, so when we set off on this journey to talk about story and spirituality, we made a decision with the lens we wanted to use. And that lens is we really want to be able to extrapolate on the story and what's happening. We want to keep it very tied in and connected to the meta narrative. As we've talked, the big picture story. But then we want to be able to talk about the implications for our lived experience as Christians, our discipleship, how we follow Jesus as a result of how we read these stories. Sometimes there's a necessary stop in between reading the story and how we respond. We've got to have the theology piece, and we'll do some theology even today. But when we really start getting into those questions about what are the implications of Genesis 3 for the gospel, the need for the gospel, we're doing deep dives into systematic theology at that point. And I think it's important that we're careful about not going down that road to the neglect of what we're trying to do, which is talk about our spirituality. So you mentioned systematic theology. For those that may not know, what what is that? Yeah. So theology, as we've discussed before, is how we think about God and how we think about spiritual things. And there's different branches of theology. So systematic theology is how we put the whole thing together, right? How, do, how does Genesis 3 impact the need for Jesus? How do we think about salvation in the context of sin and all of the implications that surround that? So that tends to be systematic theology. So part of what's interesting when we read these passages is that pericopes of these stories get labeled in ways that guide our thinking about them, right? And what is a pericope? And what is a pericope? Now, including me. <laughs> okay. So the Bible, when it was originally written, it was just a long, continuous. I mean, even in the Hebrew, it actually didn't have punctuation. It certainly didn't have sentences and paragraphs. Now our Bibles are broken up into story sections, right? And that that section is called a pericope. And as translators over time have translated these into languages that we speak, right? They break these stories up into bite-sized pieces, and that's called a pericope, and then they give it a name. So there's a lot of power in that. There's a lot of power in translators naming pericopes. So one that's come up, I think, already, I think we talked about the prodigal son and the prodigal father. Didn't we talk about we did, that? Yeah. 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 So that's a great example. You know, when we read that story in the Gospels, it's often the title of the pericope is the prodigal son. Hmm. So it already gives you a leaning as to how you are to read the story. And and I'm not saying these are bad or evil or misleading <laughs> or false doctrine. But they're not inspired. Is what you're saying. They're not inspired. And we have to be careful to not allow those to overly shape how we read the text. So this, this is a great example of what we're getting into today. So today we're going to get into Genesis 3 and 4 and 5. And a lot of Bibles, like the NIV, which is a common one that gets read in some of our circles, the ESV, the pericope title for those is often just the fall. So the implication is what happens in this story has a theological implication that plays out for the rest of the story, right? Now, 
the NIV and the ESV aren't the only ones that label it, and that's not the only titles. For example, the NRSV just calls this the first sin and its punishment. Okay. That's now here's different. also what's fa- it's very different. But what's also fascinating is the word sin hasn't even been introduced in the Bible yet. The word sin won't even show up until Genesis 4. Again, we we read anachronistically. That means we read in ways that we take later understandings and apply them back. It's not wrong, it's not evil, sometimes it's helpful. We just have to be aware. The NAB frames this pericope as the expulsion from Eden. The Common English Bible, which is a newer one that just was came out recently, is in the last decade, I would say, the pericope title here is Knowledge, Not Eternal Life. These have implications when we make these decisions. Even, and, and I would just say this, from a theological perspective and why this why this is such deep waters is when we look back at the last 2000 years when there's certain imp- interpretations of what's going on theologically in these texts it shapes a lot of the way that we live in the church for example augustine 5th century really important theologian he really leaned in here on the concept of original sin in the sense that adam and eve disobey God, and he then claimed that because of that, the implications played out for all of mankind. That was picked up later in the 16th century by John Calvin and took it even a step further, and he really leaned into the concept of the fall. But even more, the idea of human depravity, and took it to the extreme that somehow human beings have no good in them they're just evil. And, and I get, you know, we can understand that. We're going to get into Genesis 6 where we read, you know, the context or the, the concept that human beings in their hearts were always evil all the time. And John Calvin took that and ran with it. But then we lose the importance of tensions, which we're going to get into. So anyway, there's a lot here. And that's why this is a complicated <laughs> conversation. It is. I think even... Knowing that heading of the fall definitely feels more all-encompassing, like it speaks to all of our common identity as humans versus the first sin and its punishment, which seems like an individual shortcoming. So definitely is, yeah, a shift there, but that's interesting. Is that why you decided even, I wondered, calling this episode human limitations versus perhaps like the fall or the first temptation or something what made you choose that title right so if we were going if we were doing a podcast about story and theology it would have made more sense to call it something like the original sin or the fall or something along those lines because we're going to be talking about spirituality the lived experience as a result of the story i chose to call this human limitations because we're going to realize that what's happening here is God, as the creator, is giving us boundaries and limitations as the creation or the created. And how we think about that affects everything in our life. And so I want to focus there. Now, in all the research and all the reading, I spent a lot of time reading a lot of scholars on Genesis 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, etc., 
And there's a huge focus in our contemporary world on the theology, the theology, the theology. And there's very little that focuses on the spirituality. And I think that's important for us to bring that out. And certainly for, I think for a lot of our audience, that's our prime. And we want to understand the theology. It's important, but we want to understand how it affects the way we live. So that's what we're trying to do. In other words, we're the created, we're the clay, we're the pot. That's some of the language that gets used. We're not God. We're made with limitations. And so what we're really looking at today is that creation was created with freedom and potential and great capacity. But there's also limits and boundaries to us as the created. When they get crossed, there's consequences for ourselves and for others. So I think it might be good to set some maybe key things for us to think about over the next few episodes as we kind of frame this story. Genesis 3 has to be held with Genesis 1 and 2. When we get to the flood narrative, it has to be held with the whole, again, Genesis 1 and 2, because Genesis 1 and 2 give us intent, God's intent, which is super important. If we lose sight of that, we can misinterpret the story. Four things that might be helpful here. Number one, it's important as we think about these stories to really remember we have to fully capture the whole when we're thinking about our spiritual origin story. So the creation is defined by the creator, and those are important together. So the whole is important. Number two, we have to remember the importance of how we continually frame the relationship between creator and created, that at the core, that's what these stories are told for. They're told because they're defining relationship. Number three, we have to remember the importance of how we contextualize the way we read these stories and their intended use. We're going to get into this more in our next episode because these stories were written in a context, right? And the people that these stories were originally written to were used to reading stories in a certain context. So that's going to really be important in our next episode. So these stories are not trying to speak to or answer scientific, historical kind of questions, but they have a specific purpose that the writers had in, had in mind. Is that what you're saying? I'm saying that. I, I think I'm even saying a little bit more. I think as a literature expert, no, oh, scholar. Thank you. No. I didn't know about that, but yes. <laughs> as someone who studied <laughs> literature and appreciates literature, the way stories are told really changes over time. Right. It's easy for us to pick that up with some things like when we look at apocalyptic literature, we go, wow, these are different stories. We're not used to these. So we see that in Daniel, we see that in Revelation. It's true though about Genesis too. The way that Genesis is written, especially Genesis 1 through 11, is more of an epic proclamation kind of story. And we'll get into that again more in the, the next episode. Different rules apply, and we're not always used to that. So that's what I mean right? That, that they, they come with rules. The fourth thing I think that we have to remember is the importance of holding critical tensions and how we think about these truths. 
So we're going to find a lot of different tensions here that play out. And I think if we lose sight of that, we lean heavily one way or we lean heavily the other. And we see these reactions that happen throughout church history. And I think we see it a lot today. People get polarized and they take things to mean certain things in one way. So for example, we've already read in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, we have these two stories of creation. In Genesis 1, man and woman are created at the end of the narrative on day six, and they're said to be image bearers. They're created in the image of God. Then we get to Genesis 2. And in Genesis 2, we have another creation narrative. The first thing created is man, and man is created from the dirt. In other words, <laughs> Adam, Adam literally means red or red man or dirt man. I mean, there's a lot of variations of that translation. It sounds like sounds like a bad Marvel character, <laughs> dirt man. <laughs> well, so right. So when we think of that image of dirt man, it's very different than image bearer, right? So that's an important tension for us to hold that we're created in the image of God, but we're also from dust and we will return to dust. We are a created thing that will die. And we have very limited abilities as we're here on this planet. So we have to hold those in tension. So we can't possibly do justice to all these things. So I think we've got to be really today kind of focused. So today's conversation really has to be looked at with Genesis 1 and 2 in the sense of when we use that phrase, creator creates creation, we are proclaiming or allowing the text to proclaim God's intent, and then we see our limitations, and that's what we're going to build on today. So what is God's intent? God intends for us to be in relationship with him. God intends for intimacy. God intends for us to work. God intends for us to have freedom. And God binds us in this triple relationship, God, nature, and other humans. But then by the fact that we are created, we are separated from God. That's the nature of creation and creator is once the creator creates, he separates from the creation, even though we're in relationship. And now we have limitations. So we see imagery to explain this metaphor of potter and pot that come to play in Isaiah and Jeremiah, and that gets picked up later in Romans. But I think this is a good way for us to kind of look at and maybe start framing this idea of creator and created. So Hannah, I know we have queued up Isaiah 29, 16, and then Jeremiah 18. Uh, it'd be great. Could you read those two for us? Mm -hmm. And just a reminder in this chapter, who is talking to who for those that... In Isaiah 29. Oh, in Isaiah 29. Yeah, this is, this is a again, another kind of proclamation of God speaking to his people through the prophet, right? So the prophet's mm -hmm. trying to remind us of who we are as the created. Hmm. So it says, you turn things upside down as if the potter were thought to be like the clay. Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, you did not make me? Can the pot say to the potter, you know nothing? And then Jeremiah 18, verse 6, he said, Can I not do with you, Israel, as this potter does, declares the Lord. Like clay in the hand of the potter, so are you in my hand, Israel. 
The implication of these mm. statements are when we forget that we're the created and we are not the creator, <laughs> it leads to other problems, right? We mm. lose sight of our own limitations. And, and, you know, God has built into the universe. He's baked into the universe. When we push these boundaries, it pushes back. We'll get into some of that in the later part of how this works. Now, this, this goes beyond just the, the sense that we're all created alike. In some senses, as human beings, we're all created the same and that we have these limitations as the created. But what's interesting about human beings is we're also created differently. So Paul picks up on this in Romans 9, the idea that we're created, but that we're also created differently. So can you read that one, Hannah, in Romans 9.20? Yeah. Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? Yeah, this is a challenging passage for sure. <laughs> right. So we all want to be special, I think. <laughs> we all want to be special. And you know, that whole idea, and I don't know how much this is true in England. It certainly is true in America. Kids, a lot of kids are raised to, and are told by their parents, you can be anything you want to be. <laughs> it's yeah, not true. get that over there too. Yeah. It's not, what? David's single-handedly shattering dreams. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we're not all created equal. There are clearly some people who are capable of doing some things that others are not. I mean, you step into high school and you can realize everyone's not created to be the quarterback <laughs> of the football team. Everyone's not That's created true. to be the president of the math club. Everyone's not created mm. to, you know, debate well, because some people are great public speakers and some aren't. I mean, we're different, right? right? Mm. So the sentiment, the great sentiment is God has made us to be able to have freedom and make choices and build on those things. But we also all have our unique gifts and talents that some have more than others. That's a hard reality, but it's, it's mm. part of what we have to look at when we look at this creation, right? Are you mm. okay with that, Hannah? Is that okay? <laughs> I'm just, I'm processing. <laughs> but you're right. It definitely is a tension between, oh, we're these image bearers of God and what, what amazing identity we've been given alongside the, the humbling reality of being formed from clay or dirt by a creator who has a purpose or an intent for us that maybe might not be what we might have had for ourselves even. Yeah. Yeah. Living within that space is, is a tricky and, one. I think particularly in the West, probably. <laughs> right. You're right. And that's going to play out a lot more as we get to the end of this passage. It certainly, or the, this episode, it certainly plays out as we get to the New Testament in lots of different ways. The I can't say to the hand, I don't need you. The reality is some of us are hands and some are hearts and some are heads and some are feet. I mean, it's, it, it's a hard <laughs> reality, but it's part of accepting our human limitations. So yeah, I don't want to be a foot. You don't want to be a foot. I don't know. I'm not going to say what you are. So we haven't even got into the text for this episode yet, but <laughs> I, I think all of that is really important. So let's actually get into Genesis 2 and what's setting up the, the limitation aspect of what's coming and what happens in Genesis 3, and then how that opens a door or plays out to become what it becomes by Genesis 6. So Genesis 2, 9, Hannah, can you read Genesis 2, 9? 
the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So what's amazing here is God creates this garden full of all kinds of trees. And these trees aren't just good for sustenance. They're pleasing to look at. So they're beautiful. And, you know, we've talked about the role that beauty plays. It's an integral part of God's creation, but they're good for food. I mean, there's plenty of sustenance here. For we've In this image, we have two people in this garden filled with trees. And this is not a matter of will Adam and Eve get their needs met, right? But then there are well, at this point, just Adam, just to be clear. It's just Adam in the story at this point. We're told of two special trees, the tree of knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. We don't really know what that means. We just are told that they're there and they're in the garden so far. Okay, we get to Genesis two fifteen to 17. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. And the Lord commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Okay, so here we're in the Garden of Eden to work it and care for it. Of course, we're in the middle of the second creation account here. So in this second creation account, we're not given days of when creation starts and how humans are coming, but we see that man or Adam is created from the soil and this human is placed in the garden to work and care for the garden. And God tells this human that he can eat whatever he wants from the garden except one thing. He cannot eat from Mm. the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And remember a few episodes ago, raising the question as to why God even put the tree in there in the first place. Could it be seen purely as as a restraint, as a limitation on mankind, just a reminder that they are not God? I I think cynically I might say a plot device, but I won't say that. (laughs) Right. So this, I I love that you bring that up because what we start seeing here right away is God is saying, you're created, you have limitations. And I'm setting those boundaries. And this story becomes for us a story of what happens when we cross the boundaries. What happens when we move beyond what our creator has limited us? I mean, all of us have been around a three-year-old and have told them not to do something. And the very next thing that they want to do is the very thing we told them not to do. Hmm. (laughs) Right? Don't put your finger in the socket. Now, they could do a hundred things. They can run around, they can dance, they can twirl, they can jump on the couch. We haven't told them no to any of those things. We just said, don't put your finger in the socket and what do we want to do? It's our nature to push limitations. And the reality is Mm. that's part of what makes human beings special. This desire, this passion, this eros, this driving force in us to test our boundaries. And that God made us that way, right? He made us that way. Right. But then we also have to recognize when we come to those and the implications of when we cross them. And that's what happens, what plays out in the rest of the story. So Genesis 3, we get to Genesis 3 finally. 
Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Yeah, there's a lot happening here, right? I mean, what, what, what immediately jumps out at you, Hannah? What do you see here? Yeah, well, we get this introduction of the serpent. I know later on we find a curse is him crawling on his belly. So I wonder if he had legs at this point. <laughs> but he finds Eve. I don't know why that came to mind. But I think it's interesting that he gets her from the outset to question God's intention or character. Like, did God really say? And he kind of sets up this narrative, I guess, of God is holding out on you in some, in some way, like depriving you of, of, some, of something. So the serpent becomes immediately this intentionally misleading and provocative character that's really mm-hmm. working to push to push them to question the very creator, right? As you say, that that's just given them all these beautiful things. I mean, you know what what Eve should have said? <laughs> this is, <laughs> a lot did God really said. say? I mean, Eve should have said, "Have you lost your mind?" <laughs> uh, look at this place. She could have said, why are you talking? <laughs> okay, that's also good. But, all, yeah. <laughs> look at this place. Look at this garden. Look at the beauty. Look at all the trees I can eat. Look at the freedom I have. Look at this amazing you know, husband that I have. Look at this relationship with God that I have. But that's not what happens. That's Satan tries to push and erode at the very core of trust in the relationship, and that's where things really go sour, right? Yeah, I think it's interesting that Eve also seems to misquote the command of God when she adds this additional that they should not even touch the fruit, which was not in the initial prohibition. Yeah, she even goes beyond it. I wonder if that's spurred on by the serpent. So... It's, I mean, I'm sure you've been in these situations before, but that feeling of getting put on our back foot when someone that you love and trust, all of a sudden someone comes along to question your loyalty, your respect, your view of them. There's this, there's this thing that happens inside of us and it puts us kind of back. And I, I don't know that we always respond really well. In those <laughs> no. moments, that's kind of what I see happening here. I, yeah, I think Satan, or sorry, Satan's not even part of the picture yet. It's the serpent at this point, mm. but the serpent's pushing her to distrust her creator, right. and I don't know that she knows what to do with that. So, yeah, fascinating. Serpent responds here: "You will certainly not die." You know, God says we'll die. You will certainly not die. This is the beginning of the deception. It's both true and untrue. The serpent makes it sound like, well, you're not going to physically die. That's that's the what's being communicated by the serpent. Well, you're not going to die, die. 
And the serpent's right. They're not going to physically die. That's why it's so misleading. In that's, but in the sense that God meant it, they absolutely died, and they absolutely died immediately. And we see that's what happens here. So they died at a spiritual innocence. The moment they did what they weren't supposed to do, something changes inside of them. And they no longer feel at peace, without shame. They instantly start feeling fear. They instantly have an impulse to hide. And so we, we see what picks up here in Genesis 3, 7 next. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. Yeah, so the way that this ends up playing out is that the serpent's deception leads them towards something they didn't understand was going to happen, right? The serpent holds out, you will not certainly die. They're thinking physical death, we assume, because they go ahead and eat. And then immediately something else happens. That's what deception does, right? It's this bait and switch, this idea that you get tempted to believe something's going to happen and something else happens instead. Yeah, I think it is sad, even reading this, that having enjoyed this very pure, uninhibited freedom with God, that one of the first consequences of this sin, I know the word sin is not used, but this, I don't know, temptation being succumbed to is now they hide at his voice and are afraid of his presence. I think that's really devastating. So, yeah, that's the consequences, right? This death of an innocence leads to this deep sense of guilt and shame. It leads to a vulnerability, a feeling of not being safe. It leads to fear. You know, I, I think most of us can probably remember back in our early adolescence when we first started acting out in ways that really were hurtful to relationships, to family, to and when we did these things, we knew we were crossing lines. And you feel that, that deep sense of that loss of innocence. Right. And that's part of what makes adolescence so challenging. So, again, with us really trying to focus on the spirituality aspect of this, I, I think just in the next few minutes, it'd be good for us to just unpack a little bit why boundaries as created beings are so critical to our health. And these boundaries play out in a lot of different ways with our physical selves, with our emotional selves, with our spiritual selves. So God created us to need, or a very good example, or simple examples, we're created to need to eat, right? We're created to depend on water. We're created to need to sleep. Why is that good? You know, sometimes we don't 
value these things, but they, they create a deep sense of humility in us. If we think about that, that, yeah, I, I have to do these things just to function, right? So there's only so much we can do in 24 hours. There's only so much we can eat. There's only so much we can sleep. So this even happens on both sides of this. If we, if we, you know, typically the average person sleeps six to nine hours, depending on who you are and what stage of life you are in or more, you know, when you're a teen or a young person. But if we undersleep or we oversleep, it affects our life. If we undereat or we overeat, it affects our life, right? There's consequences and implications. So these limitations are really designed for our own well-being, but this plays out into other aspects. I mean, if we think about our emotional boundaries, we can only handle so much emotionally, right? At the end of a day, part of what has to happen for me is I can't sleep if I overstimulate my emotional self. Sometimes if something happens to me, it affects me for days because I have an emotional limitation. And there's a lot of conversation now around trauma and how trauma affects us. The idea of being trauma-informed really helps caretakers, pastors, and other people think about when people do get pushed beyond their limitations, that it leaves a sense of a emotional and sometimes spiritual wound there that we also have to be aware of. So these things are, we understand these at an anthropological human level, but certainly they're important. Now, spiritually, there are boundaries too, right? God gives a boundary right here to Adam and to Eve, don't eat from the tree. But the boundary is that God didn't want them to want to know what God knew. So in some senses, this tree of knowledge of good and evil becomes a spiritual boundary of wanting to be like God. And that always leads us into all kinds of trouble, right? When we don't want to be the created, we want to be the creator or have the powers of the creator. So yeah, why do we need the law? Why do we need spiritual rules? They're all for our benefit. If we live within the way we were created, we can experience a life to the full, but it takes a lot of trust when we try to grab hold of things that we were not created to have or that are supposed to take time or that we want to rush. There's problems there. Delayed gratification is actually one of our spiritual boundaries. So how does this stuff strike you, Hannah? How do you, when (laughs) we talk about these spiritual boundaries and what's happening here in this text, I mean, what does this bring to mind for you? Mm, trust, I think, is the word that's coming up for me. And I know you introduced this episode thinking about, well, we're focusing on spirituality over theology. And if theology is, I know you mentioned this in an earlier episode, is if theology is kind of the rules of the game, spirit, spirituality is how to play or playing the game. And so I think this is such an important conversation, looking at this foundational text where we see limitations introduced for the first time in the form of the tree and what that means for us as humans to trust God with limitations that have been given to us, whether that is, as you said, physically, emotionally, spiritually, and trust that he's not holding out on us. I think that's a really 
it's a challenging thing to to believe. <laughs> and as you said, I think we're also designed to transgress limitations. Well, not designed to, but I think that is innate in us. Right. Which makes this such a challenge. So that brings up, and I think it's good to circle back to the Romans 9 passage here, because part of accepting our boundaries is accepting how God uniquely made us and how we're not like everyone else. Does, and remember what it said in Romans 9, does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? I remember, I mean, this, there's, I mean, hundreds of examples in my own life of times I've compared myself to others and questioned why can't I do or why am I not like that other person? Even in my recent academic pursuits, when I'm in this PhD program for these six years and I'm sitting there and I'm with other students and I'm walking, I'm with other professors and I'm meeting other scholars and I realize, well, I'm not, I'm not smart the way they are or I can't process things the way they do. Like I, even in the same field, we realize we have different gifts and limitations within the very thing that we're doing from one another. And that's what makes us special and unique. And it gives us the ability to contribute uniquely. But it also, I think it also demands the need for community. So we talked about you not wanting to be the foot. Someone's got to be the foot, Hannah. <laughs> <laughs> and the toes that recognizes our need for one another. So the way this, this plays out often in church life, and I've been thinking a lot about Ephesians 4 lately. So in Ephesians 4, we have this image of what the church is supposed to look like, this community of believers where we're supposed to build one another up for the purposes of fullness and love and to reach maturity. And God gives different giftedness even to people to help facilitate that growth for the church. And there's different titles we can call them, right? Some are made to be evangelists and prophets and teachers and pastors. And we in today's world would say, and worship leaders and youth and family leaders and campus leaders and preacher. I mean, you know, we have ways of, of naming those things. But the point is actually God made us differently to work together for the benefit of the community. And I've experienced, I mean, we're in the ministry for 26 years. I experienced this idea that just because I was good at some things as a young minister, I was given responsibilities over all kinds of things that weren't in my giftedness, right? And we do this in church life a lot. So someone might be good at preaching or someone might be good at helping other people become Christians, and then they're put in charge of a church. And all of a sudden, now they're supposed to be good at planning and finances and organization and <laughs> public speaking and counseling and, 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 mm. and, and they sit at the top of this food chain and they're supposed to just be good at all that stuff because they were good at, you know, a couple things when they were younger. Right. That's not what Ephesians is talking about. It's talking about this idea. And we'll get to this, of course, when we get to the New Testament, but all of this has to do with boundaries and limitations and humbly accepting who we are. Hmm. Yeah, I think this this is really important to talk about. I think that even what you just said speaks to the value we put on certain gifts maybe over others too. But I think what I'm even leaving with is the freedom in even differentiating, being able to know who I am and who I am not. Like I think of how powerful even John the Baptist being able to say, no, I'm not the Messiah. Mm. 
that's not who I am. I am a voice in the wilderness. And this is the role that was set for me and I'm not something else. So there's a freedom in knowing who you are and knowing what you're not as well because I think we can take on probably more than we should. Definitely see that in the church. Yeah. yeah. This and and you know, I just just to note this, I know this episode's a little bit longer. I there's a lot to really unpack here. It has implications across certainly across the board theologically, certainly spiritually, but I do think it's important for us to really recognize the role of that we play as the created means that in humility, and this is where we have to hold that tension. We are the we're image bearers. We're created in the image of God, and we're dirt man. <laughs> we're we're created <laughs> with a nature inside we're of us foot. that desires to disobey, and we have to be able mm. to hold that tension. And it's going to affect the way that we engage the rest of the story. But we have to ultimately remember, and we'll get into this a lot in the next episode, we have to remember that our creator wants a relationship with us. He wants to be the creator. He wants us to be the created and to be in this relationship together. Mm. Thanks so much, Dave. I know we're going to continue talking about this in next week's episode as we talk about the flood. And we'll see you all then. Sounds great. See you next Thank week, you. Anna. Bye. Thank you for joining this Thread Conversation. We're more than a podcast. Check out threadpodcast.org for more immersive content. Though I'm way down here, I get a better view of this boundless world.